Hey everyone, welcome back. We're doing something a little bit different with the the next couple episodes. I uh, sat down with my childhood Presbyterian minister, Tom Gibbons, for uh, a real, real long conversation. We went over three hours. As a result, I think it's it's going to turn out best if we break it up into three parts. So for the first part of the uh, the three parts, we're going to sit down with Tom and discuss his professional and educational background, as well as his influence on my formative years, kind of between the ages of, oh, I'd say six and 13 or so. And then towards the end of the episode, we will start to explore interpretations of God's will and what happens to us after life comes to an end. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. I'm your host, Chris Graves. And I'm sitting here with a really special guest, uh, somebody who's known me almost longer than anybody in my life, my former Presbyterian minister, Tom Gibbons. Uh, is it minister or reverend or pastor? What's the proper nomenclature? Any of those work. Actually, hey, you works too. <laughs> Not father, that's a Catholic thing no, though. No, that is. <laughs> so... Uh, I've wanted to bring you in kind of since I started this podcast, just because you were a, a, you and the church were an influence in my life when I was young. Growing up kind of fell out of the church, fell out of all that. And now that I'm a bit older, I, I've kind of reflected on the teachings of, of the church and how my moralities come into play. And in hindsight, I think I took a lot more from the church than I thought I did at the time. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that, talk about you and how you got into the church and just all of it and, and unpack it and see where we go. Um, Tom was the, the head reverend, the lead, what's the, what's the title? Well, senior pastor. Senior, yeah, senior pastor at St. Barnabas Presbyterian Church in Richardson, Texas. It's where I went, I want to say from like five or six years old until I was probably 13 or 14 when it felt like we kind of fell out of church. But even after that, I know that you were still more so part of my mom's life a bit as, as a single mom. I know she reached out to you for some help at times and, and you were always there, even though we weren't, even though we weren't going to church regularly, if my mom needed something, you were still there and you were kind of a, I don't want to say a safety net per se, but a, a, a safe place when my mom needed somebody to turn to help. So thanks for that. Um, I was, I was confirmed Presbyterian, uh, when I was an infant, uh, but I did confirmation and I was a confirmed Presbyterian through you and through the church. I think I was, what's that? Sixth grade, 12 years old, about there, um, 13, eighth grade, eighth grade. So. What, I don't know what age. So that yeah, is, uh, but yeah, 12, <coughs> 13, 13, Sometime, 14 in there? Yeah, that sounds right. One of the most awkward times to ever have anything to do with um, anything other than just growing up yeah. and hormones. And that's something we're going to get into later. I have some memories of that that I still talk about to this day. But I, I wanted to start with you and kind of your journey into becoming a pastor. First question, why did you become a pastor? Ah, uh, well, I kind of backed into it. Okay. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, my senior year in college, I applied to a bunch of English literature grad, grad schools um, and decided upon, you know, to go to one of them. But um, I was not terribly happy with the idea. I was tired of being critical I don't know whether you know what that means, but that's what you do. I'm and, pretty good at being critical. Well, so no, I don't you know, know what crit that kind of critical means, but making your living out of literary criticism. Yeah. Um, basically, it's like, uh, well, Simone Weil said it's like um, taking apart a piano to find out why a sonata is any good. Oh, jeez. I mean, it's it's like that. It's you just dismantle poetry, and and um, and I got sick of it. 
So I went to work at a, uh, a steel plant um, the summer after I graduated. And I had a lot of experiences there that were very interesting. It was a galvanizing plant. Oh, yeah. Was this in, uh, up north? No, no. It was in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Um, and I was invited to go into the office because I was a college graduate. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give that a try. And I came to find out that I was invited into the office because the guy who owned the company uh, found out where I'd gone to college, and that's where his daughter went. And, and where, he decided, where did you go to college? Uh, a place called Grinnell College in, in Iowa. Okay. A private coeducational liberal arts college. Um, he found that out and decided, nah, he can't be out there in the galvanizing facility because there's about to be a strike. And sure enough, there was. Uh, and I was a member of the union. So I came in. I didn't have to cross a picket line. They only picketed the actual plant itself, not the offices. So there I was in that situation. Later in that summer, while I was working there and miserable, I hated the place. Um, my pastor, who I knew you know, from early days, called and said, look, there's a recruiter coming from Princeton. Um, and I said, well, I'm not interested in going there. And he said, that's all right. He said, he'll take you to dinner, any of the people who were interested. I said, well, dinner. Right. I can deal. So I, I went. And there were a couple of other guys there as well. Um, but it did, it piqued my interest a little bit. Um, so I thought, well, for one year, I can, I can put up with, with going to seminary and seeing. And this is Princeton, Princeton. Yeah. And they have their own separate seminary? Like, I didn't realize Princeton had a religious wing? Oh, it, Princeton University began as a, <laughs> as a congregationalist institution. Really? But it was Presbyterian to the bone. I didn't know that. Now, the seminary and the university parted company in 1812. Okay. Um, they just... But um, we still had... You could cross over and... Uh, take courses at the graduate schools in Princeton University. Um, and they, that credit transferred quickly back to the seminary. So we had, we had connections. So you, you planned to go there for a year. Yep. And did you just end up loving it and sticking it out, or is that... Now, loving it probably overstates it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a weekend warrior uh, by as everyone was, um, you had to get a field education job. And I got that. Did that at a Methodist church, did that at the university where I worked for the chaplain's office, and then did that at a Presbyterian church my third year. So, you know, I made money doing that. Academically, I was still pretty fixed on the idea, okay, I'll finish here and then go to graduate school further in philosophy. Okay. But um, it wasn't until my last year in seminary, and it's a three-year deal beyond, beyond your college. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until that last year that I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could do, go to the parish and do something. But I was not greatly enamored of it. Um, Were you, did you grow up Presbyterian? Yes. Okay, because that was one of the things I always wondered is why... <clears throat> Well, and I, I guess I still kind of do wonder. So you grew up Presbyterian, so you're f fairly familiar with that way of of worship. But yes. did you ever humor Methodist or Episcopalian or Baptist or any of those? Or were you, if I'm doing this, it's going to be Presbyterian? Um, you know, to tell you the truth, it, I didn't choose so much as just that's the direction I went. Okay. Could you have, when you got out of seminary, if you had wanted to open up Tom's Baptist Church, could, could <laughs> you have done that? Or is it, does it, once you're out of seminary as a Presbyterian, you're pretty much in the Presbyterian lane? No, not at all. Um, Princeton, because of, because of its name and its kind of international reputation, I mean, there were 300 people in the Masters of Divinity program, which I was in. They were from every country, and they were from every state. 
So there were people represent from nearly every denomination. Okay. So there were Methodists there, there were Baptists there, um, some of whom went on to become you know, pretty important people in their own right. The head of the American Baptists was a Princeton graduate. Um, so it made things, made things pretty interesting. You had, you had people from every ilk, really. And I'll tell you right now, Chris, the fact is, um, I also taught at Perkins School of Theology, which is a, at SMU, it is a Methodist institution. Really? Yeah. And I would have sent anybody to, to Perkins. It's a good place. Um, they do a good job of preparing you for ministry. You can pick up the bits and pieces of Presbyterian polity and history and doctrine and all that kind of stuff elsewhere. Are there... I, I was going to probably save this for a little bit later, but were there denominations that you just, for lack of a better word, put your nose up at or just said that's, that's so antithetical to my morality or my beliefs that I, I can't do it? I don't know whether or I, I call it, it either morality or belief. I just wouldn't. Um, in all frankness, I couldn't be a Baptist. Right. And I remember, um, and tell me if I'm misremembering this, this lesson, when we did uh, confirmation, we spent a little bit of time talking about the different denominations and some of the differences. And one of the things I recall, and tell me if I'm misremembering, is to be a Presbyterian minister, you have to go to seminary. You have to get that basically graduate degree of religion, for lack of a better word. It's closer to theology than religion. Theology, thank yeah. you. But to be a Presbyterian minister, you have to go to seminary. If old heathen Chris over here wanted to go open up a Baptist church, there's no such requirement. You just open it up and you're a Baptist, you know, Yahtzee, you're a Baptist preacher. Is that, am I remembering that fairly accurately? Somewhat, yeah. Um, the formal education part of it, you're remembering really well. Um, but Baptists have to be ordained by someone. Okay. And usually... In the old days, that was the local congregation. That boy can see lightning and hear thunder. He ought to be a preacher. Let's ordain him. Okay. And boom, you're off and running. The fact is now most Baptists, um, Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists, Baptists of just about any stripe, they, they go to seminary. I'd say 80 to 90% of them. You'd hope so, at least. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty much how it is now. It was not the way it used to be. Okay. Um, but again, you can be ordained by a local congregation. And, and off to the races. And off to the races you go. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so fast forward a little bit to... So you were the senior pastor at St. Barnabas Presbyterian Church. Correct. Were you... <laughs> Were you a senior pastor? Were you the head pastor at any other church in the Dallas area or elsewhere in the country before you got to that? Like, what? I want to I want to jump ahead s soon to St. Barnabas and, and that because that's that's how I know you. But I want to know, you know, how did you get there? Oh, okay, that's that's reasonable. When I left Princeton, well, actually, I hadn't left Princeton. I began interviewing with churches right there on the Princeton campus. So is it kind of like being a professor, you got to go and interview with the schools to see if they're going to yeah. bring you aboard? Yep, yep. Okay. And, and usually there, there's some competition, pretty substantial. Um, but my first call out of Princeton um, was to a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I was the third pastor down on a large staff in a very large church, and I basically did youth ministry. That was it. Um, and preached once a month. Um, not much there. Um, I was there about four years, and then we moved to Philadelphia, where I was pastor of a small church. Um, everything depended on me. Um, How did you like Philadelphia as a, as a town? You know, in general, I thought it was a great town. Because um, I remember when I went to Temple, you had words for me and kind of warned you, like, I want you to be careful. Just so you know, it's a very it's very gray and cloudy and cold, and I'm hearing that going. That sounds great, so like way better than <laughs> July in Texas. That's and I ended. Absolutely. I did. I loved it. Well, that was the weather. 
Yeah. Um, and that could be anywhere on the East Coast. Yeah. But Philadelphia as a town, I really loved it. Town, the people are... The thing I really liked about the people in Philadelphia is people think about Philadelphia, they're, oh, they're assholes, they're jerks. Right. I, they can be. But what I took away from people in Philadelphia, and I assume it's a more Northeast thing in general, is... Yeah, that can be rude, but it's more a fact of you always know. It's just a brutal honesty. You always know where you stand with a person. If you, they think you're an asshole, they're going to tell you, I think you're an asshole. Yeah. In the yep. South, you've got that Southern genteel manners to it. So, yeah, I'm going to be nice and sweet and how are you doing howdy to your face. And then when you leave, I'm going to tell, oh, that guy, he's, he's a real POS from that guy. <laughs> Don't do business with him. And it's a lot more, I feel like there's the same quantity of assholelessness in both places but it's a lot more transparent up north is that was that kind of your experience you know what i'm trying to say yeah i know what you're trying to say they're uh and they are pretty straightforward and in lots of ways no nonsense yeah it's just sort of here's 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 what's going on Mm -hmm. um what you see is what you get um you know i suppose that's got its own sort of posing um even this the Southern gentility is kind of opposing. Sure. Um, but it's still, it was an interesting place to be, and I, I didn't have too much difficulty with the folks. There, there are a couple of things, though, that folks in the North and East in particular, the thing that really floats their boat, if you have a question that you're going to get, it's usually, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, I'm in sales. Oh, I'm faster. Whatever. In the South, it tends to be, where are you from? Oh, that's interesting. Who are your people? Um, How can I make a connection there? Um, And the same thing is true in the North. How can I make a connection? What do you do? Um, But uh, that's unofficial. Well, that's (laughs) interesting. I mean, me being in college, I probably was exposed to a little bit less of that because I didn't. Sure. I'm sure out of college, I would have experienced that more. Well, yeah. Did so, you, so, so you were uh, pastor of a small church in Philadelphia. Yep. Were you, was your eye on that? Like, so what drew you south? Oh, um, from there I moved to Houston um, and became a new church development pastor, which basically said we were worshiping in a school. There were a body of people who wanted to be Presbyterian, and they didn't have a pastor. So I went there, and that was a blast. I loved it. Houston? Oh, well, being, being a new church development gotcha. pastor, it was just fun. You could do anything and had to, um, and so, it was terrific. So you're basically kind of like the new sales guy. Not sales, but r- recruiting, you're just trying to get enough people in to make a church sustainable? Yes. Okay. And uh, the denomination was helpful in that, being connectional, which Presbyterians are. Um, we were on, we were given a five-year plan of declining finances from the denomination. So after five years, you better be self-sufficient. So, oh, so they're basically kind of giving you like a feeder loan or yep. something, a starter yep. loan? Yep. Interesting. Yep. Well, the Methodists do it too. Uh, yeah, I'm sure um, but several of them seldom do, do the Baptists do it. You're usually out uh, there on your own. There's no net underneath, um, but it it was it was fun. It was a great great time. So you get your church. I assume you got it off the ground. You oh, succeeded yeah. in Houston. Yeah. Um, were you the lead pastor there, or? Yes, we had a DCE, a, a director of Christian education. Okay. Sort of like what Lauren. Do you remember Lauren Stenberg? Uh, yeah. At, at Saint B. Yeah. Sort of like him. I mean, someone who handled. Um, the education program of the church. Um, and she was the only, well, no, she wasn't the only. There were two other full-time people. So I had a staff, um, but it wasn't the same thing as having another pastor okay. um, who was there. So what made you leave that to come to North Dallas, Richardson? And- <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, the idea of new church development is that you cultivate the church, you try to make it independent, you try to make the session responsible um, for what goes on in the church. New church development pastors have to be kind of freelancers. They have to work. They have to work around the system because there is no system. 
So you've got to just do it. And you make a lot of decisions very rapidly. Um, but that's not the Presbyterian way. At the end of the day, it has to do with, with cooperative decisions. And after seven years in Houston, um, many of the people in the congregation were still leaning on me to make decisions, to do things, uh, to innovate, and... Um, it wasn't more of a self-sufficient community <clears throat> group? It was, but they didn't do it. That is, they were perfectly capable of it. Right. But they had gotten into a pattern of depending. Of leaning on Tom. Yeah. So I just said to Judy, you know... Um, and people listening, Judy is, is Tom's wife. Oh, that's right, my wife. I said to her, you know, this is not, in the long run, a good situation to, ha to have this happening. So we really need to, need to consider going elsewhere. And so I assume there's not a classified, classified ads of church openings, <clears throat> is there? Like how do you decide on Dallas? How do you get in the door? How does that work? That's a good question. Um, Especially at a time before internet, it's even well. Even even before then, there were um, there are ways to do that. Um, there were publications that came out from the denominational headquarters, which at that time were in New York. Um, you know, now it's in Louisville, but. They basically, I'm trying to, I can't even remember what it was like pre-internet. Uh, yeah. um, but all of it was, was pre-internet for me. I mean, when I came to St. Barnabas, that was 28, 29 years ago. There was very little that, that transpired in an online I remember way. what a, kind of a, <clears throat> in a small way, what a big deal it was just when we kind of got our website up back yeah, in the oh, day. Oh, I know. It was, it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've just past light years from beyond that. But suffice it to say, the denomination has always maintained a long list of churches that are looking for pastors okay. and what kinds of leadership qualities they want in that person. There are pastors who send in their personal information form to a central location along with what they consider their pastoral priorities and gifts to be. And what... What dictates that? Like, why does one church need a sunny disposition, what, whatever, versus we need a micro... I'm speaking... I don't <laughs> I know, know how what this you're works, doing. but how does a church determine their needs? Well, for one thing, you're identifying personal traits, personality traits, mm -hmm. what they're looking for are skills. Okay. Or at least the perception. So we're, we're struggling with raising money. We need somebody who's yeah, good. Yeah, we need someone who's good at doing that. We, you know, there are, or building a, a congregation. List. or Okay, okay, you got I it. gotcha. You got it. Um, you know, or we want a good preacher. We want someone who can lead worship in a very effective way. I mean, no, there's a long, long list. Who can do Christian education, who can do teaching. I mean, there's a long uh, and, list. Of, and on Tom Gibbon's form, what are your top three or four attributes? Well, you know skills? what? Um, I haven't I haven't had to fill one of those out in a long time, so it, it's kind of hard to say. But I think what, given, what would you think are your big your best skills in that realm? Preaching, teaching, worship leadership, um, and organizational ability. What would you say your weaknesses are? Your lower down on the list, your skills. Lower down on the list, um, what would be listed at least in those days as evangelism? Oh, terrible at that. Yeah, I can't imagine you. Terrible. Um, in spite of the fact that I was a new church development pastor, and I was knocking on doors every night, but it was, it was simply uh, you know, knocking on doors, getting to know you, hospitality, make people aware that this is a new church in town. That it was more bringing in members instead of converting people to the faith? Uh, evangelism is technically sharing the good news. The problem is... Um, the way that gets interpreted, I'm just not there. Okay. I'm just not there. The way it gets interpreted is conversion. Yeah. That's not what it is. Oh, okay. Because that's, yeah, that's the connotation I have of it. Yeah. And I never associated it with the church back in the day. Well, if it happens, that's great. Mm -hmm. 
but um, but we all have different personalities and different connections. And if you really um, would like me to boil down what Christianity is all about, I'm going to use something that was um, it was something that was said by one of the great fathers of the church, and they were fathers; they weren't mothers. Um, at least until later, there were mothers as well. But one of the great fathers of the church, who was a great preacher in Constantinople, basically said, the essence of Christianity, when you boil, all, boil it all down, is to dedicate yourself to the common good. He said that's the essential part of it, which means everyone is a brother or sister to you. The common good is crucial for understanding what Christianity was about. It feels, and we're going we're gonna to get into that more in, in a little bit, but it feels so antithetical to a lot of what Christian, what people calling themselves Christians tend to uh, promote these days. The people who speak the loudest, you mean. Thank you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Jump back into to Tom's journey to St. Barnabas. So they've there's a central kind of pastor clearinghouse, if there you will. Is. There is. That's a great way to put it, Chris. And you've got your skills. I assume this church and this little church in Richardson, St. Barnabas Presbyterian, is looking at it and going, ah, "Those are some qualities we need in our our pastors." So, I, do you do you interview? Do you like guest pastor? And they see if they like you. How's the? What's the process from them looking at your your pre-internet pastor Indeed profile to getting into the church? And well, that's how it starts, though. It's like a resume. Um, in the days when resumes were hard copy, right? You know, the, you have a resume. The church has a church information form, and it identifies it's in five pages or less what the church is all about, what skills they're looking for, who they are, how many members they have, what they consider to be the strengths of the church, and every now and then some of the weaknesses. But you can kind of suss them out pretty easily Yeah, just from a, a five-page piece of paper. So the five-page, like let's say, so St. Barnabas is five-page. Here's what we are. Here's what we want to be. Once you, we're going to fast forward a little bit to your, you're at St. Barnabas. How much latitude guidance do you have at this church is a b and c this is what we want to be how much directional oversight force guidance do you have at you know what this church would be better d e and f or shifting a church's priorities or or views does that happen yes is it it something consciously or is it how much of that is is the senior pastors doing and how much of that is you know what, these people, you know, the older generation is kind of fading out, the new generation's coming in. How much of it is congregation? How much of it is pastor? That's a great question, Chris. And I think you'd have to say it's a little bit of both. Sure. Um, if there's some really high-powered individuals within the congregation, for instance, and the pastor tends to be very live and let live or even passive, um, then I'd say, you know, the lion's share of it has come from the congregation or from really heavy-duty individuals in a congregation. Um, if it's the reverse, and there aren't many people who will ever get in the way of the pastor, then I'd say it predominantly, it, it's predominantly the pastor who drives that kind of thing. The ideal is to have a situation where you're able to hammer out ideas with people. Does it happen, I, and if it's happened at St. Barnabas, please tell me, or you've heard about it in other churches where your values, your ideals, what you want to see out of a church, the new, like we were saying, the congregation shifts or you know, certain alpha personalities kind of come into the church, start pushing a church in a direction you don't like. What is a pastor's recourt? Do you try to steer it back? Is there a point where you just go, you know what, this isn't for me, you guys need a pastor who reflects your values? What happens when the congregation and the pastor start to really clash? Um, Did that ever happen at St. Barnabas? At St. B? No. Okay. Um, I'm what, sure you've with, heard of it with, and seen it at other churches. I, oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. 
Um, one of the things that I said um, about St. Barnabas that I loved was the fact that they have, uh, with one exception, they have had pastors who have stayed no less than 10 years. Even the assistant pastor, or are we talking like the senior no, pastor? No, the associates. We're talking about senior gotcha. pastors. Okay. Um, no, the associates, they've got long tenure too. I mean, yeah. Lorem was there for ages. Yeah. And, I and remember, he's still there as part of the congregation. Yeah. I remember Ben. Ben? He was there for a little bit. <laughs> he was. Because I, I think he left probably before I moved out of Dallas. I don't think he was there, but what was he there? A couple years maybe? No, no. He Longer was there that? nearly um, six years. Okay. Um, but yes, he was there. And that's, you know, for associates, that's a long time. That's a good tenure. Yeah. So, uh, so circling back. Was Claire there when you were there? I don't think so. Okay. Name doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Um, so pastor and the congregation are buttonheads. The direction of the congregation isn't what the pastor looks for. Maybe the pastors go in a direction of the congregation, whatever. How does that flesh itself out? Too often, um, too often it means the pastor gets the boot. Okay. Now, is that a is that an election of the eld like the the church is an elder? Remind me what the the leadership organization is in the the, the church. session. Thank the you. Session. The the thing is though, the Presbyterian pastors are not called by the session; they're called by the congregation. So. In order for a pastor to leave, whether it's his or her decision or whether it's, in effect, the church's decision, the church has to agree. The congregation has well, to... The session is decision-makers above the church, right? Well, they are the leadership group within the church. Within the church, okay. They're the, the gathering of active elders okay. who, along with the pastor, kind of set you the You can see the parts of confirmation that slip my yeah, mind. Yeah, well, that's all right. Um, <laughs> You know, they 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 slip mine too. By the <laughs> way, when I was when I was your age, going through confirmation, I I didn't know Jack. Yeah, frankly, um, you know, all of this just kind of came with experience. So, so the session, the elders kind of vote. The session really can't oh. remove a pastor. Only the congregation, with partnership of the presbytery, can do that. The Presbytery is, you may remember this, Chris, it's a geographical entity. Right. We have roughly, oh, I don't know, 170 churches in the Presbytery. It um, goes all the way north to the Red River and all the way east to the state line, yeah. all the way south, almost to Austin, actually, to Salado, um, and west to Mineral Wells. So it's a big geographical territory, and that presbytery is composed of all the pastors and elders, equal numbers of elders. And that presbytery has to sign off any time a church wants to get rid of its pastor. Does the presbytery look at the session and go, you guys, no? Does that it, happen? Do it they can. Get... It can. The so that's going to make a really uncomfortable church, doesn't it? We want you out. We've been told no. Now we're stuck with each other. Or at that oh, no, point, does no, the no, 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 <laughs> that would never happen. No, the now we're stuck with each other. Uh -huh. No, the the presbytery does a good job of intervening um, if there is if mediation. There's, yeah, doing uh, okay. mediation, trying to get everything kind of calmed down, everyone on the same page. Um, when that doesn't work, it's it doesn't do anybody any good. To keep a pastor the at that point, the Presbyterian is going to go. You know what? Yeah, let's. Yeah. What kind of issues spark these conflicts? Golly. Uh, like, like tons of issues. Like, so I'm thinking about it as a flaming liberal. I know our church is very progressive, but I've heard from other Presbyterians, uh, like in Houston, a coworker of mine was in one of the big churches in Houston as Presbyterian. And I, we were, oh, you're Presbyterian? I'm Presbyterian. Yeah, I really liked, you know, how progressive and open-minded to, like, gay marriage, our church, <laughs> and homosexuality, our church was. And he's like, our church would never, like, that's not, that's not allowed. And I'm like, wait, what? So is it, so let's say there's a big, oh, I'm going to speak bluntly, a homophobic, anti-homosexual uh, contingent in the church that kind of comes up. 
you've always been, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, pretty progressive with those kind of issues. If that swells up, how do you, is, is that an issue that would rise to that occasion? For some churches, yes. And if it comes up in, if it came up in St. Barnabas, how do you handle that? Oh, it, it comes up, um, well, it came up fairly regularly. Um, Did it, even yeah. when I was there? Well, because yeah. again, my whole yeah, a little bit was, before you were there okay. was really when when I had to deal with it, and I dealt with it at the new member class, uh-huh. and just said, "This is what you're getting into here." If you don't like it, go find another church. Yeah, I mean, and I don't not sure frame I, it quite I, I, like right. that, Chris. Yeah, the Baptist uh, church down the block, get on out of <laughs> no. here. I'm sure you weren't, but no, it was it was more a matter of someone would point blank say, "Well, you know, I hope you are Bible believing." Well, that's a... Is that their code for That's it? code. Okay. I was just going to say, that's the code. Um, Bible-believing tends to mean that... Um, the Old number Testament, one, we're you take the Bible yeah. literally. Number two, um, we, we don't recognize any contradictions in anything that, that's to be found in the Bible. The Presbyterian I mean, Church doesn't seem like a great church for those kind of beliefs to begin with. Am I, am I wrong in that? Well, depends on which... Land of Presbyterian you're talking about. Yeah. The PCUSA, of which we're a part, uh, tends to be the... the More progressive more wing. progressive. And it's, it's the largest of the denomination, the Presbyterian denominations. But some of the, some of the people who couldn't... You know, they just couldn't deal with gay ordination and gay marriage. Um, most recent, that's the most recent reason for there to be... Uh, discord within the Presbyterian denomination. Uh, they just they found other places. Yeah, other Presbyterians. It kind of leads me into one of, like I said, and, and we're going to get into kind of my evolving faith here in a minute. And I wanted to talk that out with you, but right. just since we're on the topic of of gay marriage and homosexuality and everything, one of the the big memories I have of the Church of Saint Barnabas was. Probably 13, yeah, right about 8th or ninth grade. Um, and tell me if I'm misremembering this narrative because I was 12 or 13 when it happened. But as I understood it, a lot of the elders, I'm sure you were involved, Ben, the assistant pastor, um, got together and there was just kind of a consensus of our kids aren't getting the sex ed that they should be taught in school. Our schoolers are failing our kids. We're going to put together an opt-in unbelievably mm-hmm. comprehensive sex ed program and if you want your kids to be a part of it it will be on a saturday here's when you can come sign up for it and i tell people my most comprehensive sex education came from my presbyterian church and people are always floored when i tell them that and for people listening when i talking when i'm talking comprehensive and this is what i remember of it we sat down we had a section on all of the contraception and, and its effectiveness from IUDs to diaphragms to condoms to pulling out to abstinence. We covered it all Um, and its effectiveness. We talked about premarital sex, and the lesson I kind of took away from it was, you know what, God would really prefer you wait till marriage, but if you don't, here's all the ways you have sex safely. And God forgive was kind of the takeaway I got. God would prefer you do this. If you don't, God forgives, and here's how to effectively since you guys didn't word it that way, but effectively right. if you're going to sin, here's how to sin responsibly. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm putting words into, into y'all's mouth, but <laughs> in addition to all of that, you guys talked about masturbation and you know what? Here's most people do it. You, God's not going to hate you. If you do it, homosexuality, there's X percentage of the population are gay. God loves those people just the same as his straight sons and daughters. And it was just very progressive very, very comprehensive, um, and there was no shame or stigma to any of it. And I just remember being really floored by that. And I'm 34 now. 20 years later, it still stuck with me. A couple questions about that is, one, is that kind of how it came to be? You guys just kind of got together and felt our, our schools aren't providing this service to our community and it's our responsibility to? Well, that's that's part of it. it. Used to be there was sex education in the schools. Right. I don't know whether did you encounter any of that in a, it was, in Richardson schools. Yes and no. It, we had sex ed, and as I've I, I talked to high school teachers about this, 
as I understand it, the kind of the, the edict was you're not allowed to proactively teach them anything but abstinence. If a kid asks you a question, you are allowed to answer it, but you're not allowed to teach them about condoms and birth <clears throat> control and all of this stuff. It's abstinence prevents pregnancy. Here's the parts of the woman. Here's the parts of the man, which we also covered in our church sex ed. Um, it was it was more of a kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy of sex ed in schools versus the church was very much a, we're about to get into it and we're going to get into all of it. That's correct. Um, I don't know whether it was a reaction to, they don't do this very well in the schools, but my hunch is that it was. When you went through, and, and there was a text that we used that was the basis for that sex education class. It was called God's Gift of Sexuality. Okay. And so those were, it was a wonderful, um, wonderful resource, denominationally. It was written by two pastors, and um, we were sold on it. I mean, it, and actually, Ben was not the first one to use it. Uh, Lauren did that okay. before that. Um, we did it every, oh, I don't know, roughly five years because we included senior so highs and junior highs. So it wasn't a first-time thing when we did it. No. I, it was just that, okay. That, but we used the same curriculum. Okay. Um, and, that, and that curriculum, I still think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, unfortunately, it's now out of print. Oh, really? Yeah. We still have ours, but... It's out of print. The denomination doesn't produce it anymore. Was there pushback from church members about, oh, our kids shouldn't be getting taught this? Oh, yeah, this? there was pushback. And it, so was the response, it's opt-in. If you don't like it, don't send your kid to it? Was that... Oh, yeah. We, we said no one's required to do this. Mm -hmm. This is simply a resource we think is meaningful and appropriate for this age kid. And they need to, they need to get it here rather than somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, we lost a member uh, member family, a really important member family really? over that. Yeah. What was their, they just, abstinence only is what should be taught? Like, what was their gripe? Well, I mean, you hit on one of them. Um, there was not um, a strong enough effort to say, you know, this is wrong. Premarital sex is so wrong. Um we shouldn't even con we shouldn't even talk about um, various prevention of pregnancy. Yeah, um, and there was shouldn't no be talking about it with these kids because these kids should be told, no, nah, just don't do it. Um, and they they had a real issue with um, not making not making gay relationships wrong. Yeah. And I, I, that was one of the things I remember taking away explicitly was homosexuality. I think the stats used at the time might have been out of date, but it was like homosexualities are X percent of the population. Right. God loves them just the same as everybody. It was not a, it didn't go with the, this is a choice doctrine. It, it, it's a sin doctrine. It was, they're, they're part of the family. Love them like everyone well, they else. They are part of the family. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, it still blows my mind. What do you think about, and, and I ask this because I have a friend who I actually hope to have on the podcast. Um, he is an out gay man, and but he comes from a very evangelical, conservative Christian denomination. I don't remember which one, but he was an out man even before he was out. wasn't much of a secret. He's just one of those guys. I love him to death. And he came out, and I guess he had some gay relationships, and he dated. But at some point, he made this grand pronouncement of, you know what, I'm a Christian first, I am an out gay man, but I'm not basically said I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to act on it, I'm not going to date, I'm not going to have sex, um, because that's sinning. It's not, it's not a sin for me to be gay, it's basically a sin for me to act on it. Have you heard about that? Because I talked with uh, a Mormon roommate of mine once who's gay, and he's before he left the Mormon church, he said, yeah, that's kind of the teaching is, you know what, being gay, not a sin. Acting on it, that's the sin. And so it just feels like it's, that almost feels worse to, oh, you know what, we love you even if you're gay, just don't act on it. That feels almost more repressive than... Yeah. 
be in the closet, keep it to yourself. Have you, do you have much experience with that? Or have you heard about that kind of philosophy of oh, yeah. homosexuality? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But basically what that says is um, you will never be able to love in a deep mm-hmm. and meaningful way. You will never be able to have a partner with whom you can be intimate. Uh, but, but it's okay to be gay. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, it, I've heard it lots. Um, I think our vice president is, is a person who would take that line. Uh, your word's not mine. <laughs> He's, oh. Um, and I'm, I'm holding off on getting too political, but I'm going to have some questions about that. Um, I, I guess, I guess I want to transition a little bit into my, my faith and what I took away from the church. Like I said, the sex ed thing was one of them, but one of the other things that really kind of blew me away, and I don't know how much of it, and I hope you, you'll enlighten me. I don't know how much of it was our church, how much of it was the Presbyterian church, how much of it was just, I got lucky with you and Ben, but confirmation in church and your, uh, your sermons, it was very much a loving, forgiving place. Um, very much like you said, taking care of the community, uh, treat others as you want to be treated. Uh, it was less about doctrine and what you can and can't do so much as are you making the people in the world around you a better place? And if you slip up, if you do sin, if you do wrong things, we all do, and God forgives. I remember, I, I don't remember if it was you or Ben, I feel like it might have been Ben, but we were having a talk about God's power for forgiveness. And Hitler came up. I don't know, I, I, I don't think I asked it. Maybe I did. That sounds like a question I, I would ask. I was going to say, Chris, that, that works. <laughs> but we, we got into heaven and hell and all of that. And he said something that blew my mind. He said, you know, and he, he prefaced very clearly. He said, this is my personal belief and interpretation on the Bible. But he said, he's like, I think even Hitler, Hitler is in heaven if he sought forgiveness for his sins and, and meant it. God has the capacity to forgive even that. And I remember hearing that and just going, why? like, it, something about it, that notion of love and compassion and forgiveness is so far outside of the scope of most humans' capability of love and forgiveness that it just kind of stuck with, wow, this is, it stuck with me. Um, and it made me want to be a little that if I can have you know an, an iota of that much compassion, I feel like I'm doing okay in this world. That that capability of forgiveness and and, and to be clear to people listening, I'm not saying I forgive Hitler or anything of the sort, but it was more of a thought exercise that really kind of stuck with me. And is that a Presbyterian thing? Is that an art church Saint Barnabas thing? What? Because um, I've said that to other Christians, and they look at me like I have eight heads. Really? Yeah. Where they're like, oh, two, God, Hitler's in hell. There's no question Hitler's in hell. I'm like, well, <laughs> and, and I'm sure I'm not explaining it as well and thoughtfully and poetically as Ben did, but... <clears throat> I think he was just talking about God's capacity for forgiveness yeah. is boundless. Exactly. But it has, there has to be a genuine turning. Repentance, asking yes. for forgiveness. Of course. And, and, and he stressed that. Right, and that that is a very Presbyterian thing—the idea of repentance and forgiveness. Um, but uh, you know, you get no objection from Methodists, most Methodists, or Baptists, for that matter. It ca- Catholics have, and I understand uh, Protestants and Catholic. Or I, I don't think we've got time on the podcast to unpack all of those differences. But Catholics are big on repentance and forgiveness as well. But for whatever reason, Catholics, and I'm speaking in broad strokes, seem to hang on to the shame more than Presbyterians. Do you have any insight on why that is or what that, why that is? I really don't, although there's always um, the old saw, you know, nothing like Jewish guilt and Catholic guilt. Right. I mean, they carry that around all the time. 
Well, you know, we, we're good at that too. Um, you know, Calvinist guilt, my goodness, there's plenty of that to go around. So I don't know that the issue of shame, um, I think part of the deal is with Roman Catholics, they are so much invest, is invested in the priest and the priesthood. Um, the, the churches, well, it's the highfalutin word is magisterium, which basically means the teaching office of the church, which is the pope, the archbishops, the bishops, the local priests, and what they say goes. And that's, that's hard um, because what they say uh, has not always been what people did. Right. So they cart around a lot of stuff that, that they feel guilty about. How does that so? And I remember that from our confirmation. I I would you were very much. I think you led kind of the last grade, or maybe was it two years of confirmation? It was two years. Yeah. So yeah. the first, I think the first year was Ben. Second year was you. Actually, it was a tag team. We was it? Yeah, we okay. alternated every week. Okay. So yeah, you might, yeah. I guess that's right. I'm I'm getting old. The memory's well, getting foggy. That's all right. You just had to do it two years. That's the deal. That but, was, that's a lot rougher than most people have to go through, really? by the way. Yeah. But I remember you were very much, and I remember you specifically in this situation, you would welcome the discussion and talking out of ideas, even though you've been to seminary, you've read the Bible. I assume you've read the thing backwards and forwards. Yeah. Um, so you've got a lot more knowledge and an insight into this and wisdom. But we would talk out ideas that I'm sure I, I, I can't remember the specifics, but I remember once where I said something and the look in your face was clearly like, he's wrong, but I'm going to let him talk it out. But you never said you're wrong. You never, it was as opposed to a Catholic where it's like what I says goes, it was, well, if that's how you want to take this away, if that's, if that's right. how you want to take it and go, okay. Like, how is that hard for you at times? Do you get people taking lessons away that you don't? Well, that's not what I was saying. That's not the lesson you need to take from this at all. Does that happen to you? How do you deal with that? Oh, sure, it does. Um, um, have you have you seen any old Woody Allen movies? Um, Probably. Not. I well, feel like anyway, one or two. I just, that's, but it, that's one of those one of those things. He's standing in line with, um, with some people at a theater, and this guy behind him is just jammering on about how um, you know, Marshall McLuhan believes this, and he's got, you know, he's got a, I, I'm, a, I'm a foremost interpreter of him. And Woody Allen goes, would you wait just a minute? And he goes back further in the line, and he brings back Marshall McLuhan. And McLuhan says, I don't think you've understood me at all. I mean, so it, it's kind of like that. Everyone has their own their own point of view, and that point of view has got to be um, heard, um, right or wrong. That's a, that's, a tough, that's a tough thing to say. You can be right or wrong about certain things, but not... Uh, faith, faith is one of those things that... Uh, there are some rights and wrongs that everyone seems to... Uh, fabricate yeah. for them for themselves on the basis of their experience, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not so good. Which which kind of segues me into something I wanted to kind of unpack with you and get your opinion because we talked about the stuff when I was twelve, thirteen, and then we were, I don't think we've seen each other in probably fifteen years. It's been a while. Yeah. Um. So I would I was confirmed Presbyterian. I would describe myself today as probably agnostic and it's taken me some kind of reflecting to kind of think about all of this stuff. I remember the morality and the ethics and the way to live, taking that to heart from the church and from uh, confirmation and everything. And I feel like I still live with a lot of those ethics and and ways to live today i what always and even i remember even thinking this at the time was the god and jesus and trinity stuff 
meaning less to me and and feeling less concrete um and, and i and i say i'm agnostic i don't think i'm an atheist because i don't know i feel like an atheist knows there is no god i i don't know and i, I hope i'm not breaking your heart at all talking no. this out no. but you can bring it a little bit closer okay but Treat others how how you want to be treated. Try to find forgiveness in your heart. Um, those that, you know, everybody's effectively a brother and sister on this planet. Those lessons really stuck with me. And I feel like even today as a relatively, you know, godless heathen that I am, I feel like I live my life with, with that foundation. Um, but I'm not... Praise Christ. I'm not, that's not the focus of, of my spirituality, of my ethics, is that what I've told people is if there is a God, he's either a real asshole. The, the, <laughs> the Southern Baptist fire and brimstone, yeah, yeah. floods or punishment for gays, all of that. He's a real asshole. I don't want to be part of that club. Or God is a real hands-off, real, real practical jokester. And when you get to heaven, he goes, yeah, did you see this? That was, that was crazy, wasn't it? There's, I, I feel like it has to be one of those. And if, if it is the latter, if it is more of a, the loving, kind-hearted, forgiving God that we were taught in church, and you could tell me if I'm off base with this, I feel like if I die and get to those gates and I'm, talk, you know, I'm up there with God, He's going to look at me and go, you know what? You lived my teachings. You didn't really wave the book around. You didn't. It, it feels like he cares more about the life you live rather than necessarily why you lived it or the words you preached, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I taking away something worthwhile from the church? I mean, what are your beliefs on that? My beliefs on... Whether you just, take something away from the church, an, or an agnostic living a relatively <clears throat> Christian life, or um, can you live a Christian life as an agnostic? I guess is even I another question. So. I think so. I think so. Yeah. the The deal is, though, um, philosophically, mm-hmm. um, if we had maybe another six hours, sure, uh, we could really do the hammer and tongs thing on this. Okay. Well, we got a, a little bit of time. You can, well, you can hammer and talk right, a little bit. All right, let me just say, um, the bottom line for me to ask you the question is, why bother to be ethical? Why bother uh, to, uh, to have uh, any kind of morality whatsoever? Why bother to treat others the way you expect to be treated? Because if we do, because living life that way makes for as pleasant of an experience on this planet as possible. What makes you say that? Because what is it that you believe that enables you to say that? It's more of a a logical a logical process of if we're all trying to get by, you know, help each other get by as best as possible. That to me feels like it's going to get along better than if we're all out for each other and it's more of a Hobbesian rape pillage still. Uh, am, am I thinking Hobbesian or Lockean? Uh, you clearly can tell I slept through a lot of political philosophy. <laughs> but I believe it's Hobbesian, the, the just yeah. animalistic, take what you need, rape, like, yeah, you could live like that and get by, but it seems awfully miserable. And it seems like not a nice way to live. No, oh, I would certainly concur in that. So, but I guess what I'm saying is that um, that all of us have, and I think you recognize this. All of us have more than one motive to do particular things. Sure. We and a lot of our unconscious is involved and engaged in that, and a lot of our unconscious, um, at least for most people, is. Um, it remains unconscious. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're not even that aware of our motivations. 
And I think that happens an awful lot with, um, with people who, uh, well, let me reassure you on this. Um, Francis Bacon years ago said, um, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. If someone is willing um, to live with doubts, they will end in certainty. Those who live in certainty will invariably end in doubts. And I, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, an agnostic at least says, I'm not certain. No, absolutely not. Um, there are people in this world who are um, in every, every one of the great religions, as well as some really minor ones, who are so full of certainty that um, they're going to end in doubts. I, you know, give me doubt anytime. What what do your doubts look like? It's a good question. Um, I'm completely agnostic when it comes to what takes place after we die. Totally agnostic. The reason being that no one other than, in my case, I believe, no one other than Jesus has ever come back. And he didn't want to talk about what was going on somewhere else. So I guess what I'd say is, you know, trust the promises, live your life as best you can. Uh, if you believe in God, um, then God's going to take care of you. If you don't, then you've lived your life. But what happens afterwards? You know, I don't know. Join us for the next episode where Tom and I pick up right where we left off. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at It Never Hurts to Ask, and you can listen to It Never Hurts to Ask on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.